This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Welcome to a very relaxing episode of the Door County Pulse podcast. I have my coffee. It's early in the morning. I'm sitting on a couch. It's a whole different atmosphere, wouldn't you say, Miles? <laughs> it feels totally different in here, yes. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I'm joined by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for The Pulse. It's like inside the actor's studio or something like that. I'm going to use this voice throughout the entire podcast and we'll see how long it takes everybody to close the window. (laughs) (laughs) So we, uh, we're wrapping up a year. We're, we're heading into Christmas here. We just put together our year in review issue of the Door County Pulse, and we have spent the last couple of weeks... By the way, the paper is called the Peninsula Pulse. What did I say? Door County Pulse. Yeah, but this is the Door County Pulse podcast, and I hosted a <laughs> show called the Door County Pulse. It's kind of ingrained in me at this point. But we, you know, we've been looking back over the last year, and I thought this would be a fun episode to kind of just chat about the things that happened, and constantly and over and over go, I can't believe that was this year. Yeah, right. Because that's... <laughs> Most years end up like that, but this year Mm -hmm. especially has seemed like it's been forever. Yeah. Because 2020 didn't actually end. It just kind of became 2020 part two. And so the last two years are just a blur. I think that's actually a fair way to put it because it does feel like it's like whenever COVID started was like a new year, even though that was March. And it's just like. We're just in this one long COVID year. Right. There was a brief, like, 2020 happened for a little bit until March, and then it was like, uh-oh, now we're <laughs> in this weird miasma. So why don't we why don't we talk about the year? We, each of us handled different parts of the year, different things going on. Um, I know that you looked at a number of different things. I looked at some art, entertainment things. Let's just kind of reminisce about a year in Door <laughs> County. Where do you want to start? I don't know. I guess I would say like what, if you think back to, in this year, is there is there a moment or an event or a, I don't know, a news item or anything that sticks out most to you? Like if you, if you think like 10 years from now, 2021, and it's really hard because the years just become a blur anyway. So let's say like five months from now, <laughs> what sticks out? Well, I can tell you that kind of the overarching theme of this year was it's back. It's yeah. returned. We're in person again. Yeah. We were constantly like as people who are writing about events and people who are writing every week, it became this kind of like monotonous Groundhog's Day where every single article was starting with because of COVID related concessions in 2020. Yeah. Finally, this thing is back in person. And that was every single thing. As a writer doing this for 15 years, it's always hard to come up with like a good lead, especially when you're talking about something that happens every year. You're like, all right, how do I make this sound different than last year? This year was terrible because every press release comes in the same way. I write the press releases for our Pacers events or Pulse things. I do the same thing. There's no way not to do it. But we'd be looking through the issue so many times and be like, we can't have another headline that says returns or is back. <laughs> right. It was even in my own head. I'm like, I, what, what else can we come up with? Right now? All that is to say it was a year of things coming back and yes. returning. There were many things that persisted. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that in terms of like restaurants, because restaurants didn't really come back so much as continued to persevere 
through the conditions of last year and then even more different conditions this year. But it, it was a big year of things coming back and doing things again for the first time in over a year for many of those things. And there's some stuff still that is going to return, you know, at the end of the year and into next year that we haven't seen for two years now at this point. So that was kind of the big thing that stood out to me in 2021 is like, this is the year that things come back. And it was also weird because we do a lot of promotion. And so to walk that line of being like, yay, it's back. We're all in person. Let's party. And also still have an ongoing pandemic. Yeah. Trying to get people excited about things while at the same time, you know, trying to walk that line of not saying it's over. It, it was a challenge. And, and I think that that's a challenge that every organization had to deal with this year. You know, like personally, I was thinking about this last night as we hit this new wave of COVID. And I was like, you know what? Seems like so many people have had it. And somehow in our office, I, I, don't, I don't know if anybody. Don't say it. Don't say it out loud. Yeah. Don't say right, it out loud yet. Because okay, for me, I'll say it for me. I have not been, you know me, I've not been the most locked down person. Early on I was. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to get back. I'm going to get vaccinated. I'm going to do things. And I was trying to think of like, how have I not do it? I put on massive events and I'm exposed to a lot of people. I cover all the other massive events. I go to these things. I've been to Lambo. I've been to different <laughs> sporting events. And I guess it's like a little bit of like somewhat caution and the people closest to me are all of like mind and have been vaccinated and stuff. And maybe that helps, but just a random thought as you talk about all these things coming back. So we won't talk too much about it because it'll, it'll jinx us. So yeah, I don't want to ruin anyone's childcare by jinxing it talking on here. Right. Well, I mean, there, there's something to say about like you were locked down early on when it was most important to be, and then you got your vaccination early and then, you know, you didn't jump right out into Lambo a day after getting that is your true. vaccine. Yeah. So you, you did everything the way, the safest way that you could. And so it, it, I guess it goes to show that if you follow recommendations and you listen to the science and you do everything the way that, you know, the, the safest way that you can, that it's, it's not as difficult to maneuver all of this. Yeah. Right. Like, I haven't had to give up all that much for the last. <laughs> sure. Um, I'm starting to feel the pressure again because I haven't gotten my booster yet. And so like that mm. where now I'm like, well, I'm vaccinated, but I did get vaccinated very early on. Yeah. So how much protection do I still have? I'm trying to get my booster as soon as I can. But I did the uh, booster flu shot combo the day before Thanksgiving. The cocktail? Yeah. And uh, I also might have had a couple of beverages that evening. So I was not very helpful on Thanksgiving morning. It was terrible planning on my part, but you know, in hindsight, it was worth getting it done when I got it done. Right. What about for you? What was your big standout like news item? Well, you talked about restaurants a little bit, and I think you know we wanted to talk predictions later, and I want to jump the gun on that too much. But I think like we learned so much as restaurants. You said the word like persevere, just continued to plow through. And I think some things will never go. There are certain restaurants that are like, we're going to stay this way. Like we don't want to deal with full on service and all the other things that we used to do. I think a lot of restaurants will never go back exactly the way they were. Not in a like, oh, we can't function, but in a, they found out that it was easier this way, or they found out that they didn't have to staff as many people. And in a year when labor was so short, a lot of people had to go like, oh, we're going to be counter service only. And they found out that that didn't really take away from what they were doing. And maybe it made their job easier. Anybody who owns a business knows that the worst part of it is managing people. Like it's just, it's the biggest slog. So if you can manage fewer people, I don't want to say that and like lose jobs for people or anything, but like that makes your job easier. You can focus on the core business. And so I think a lot of restaurateurs that I've talked to over the last year, that's something they're going to do. 
The other thing is, I know this from working events. When we had to start doing them again, I was like, wow, my muscle memory <laughs> and my brain memory of how to do these things, it, it wasn't there quite the same way after taking a whole year, probably almost a year and a quarter away from doing anything when we first did beer festival and then like the half marathon, which is our biggest event. When we did that in October, I was just like, I can't remember exactly how to do this all efficiently and quickly. And right. it's amazing how it's kind of like, I remember when I had ankle surgery and I, I had to like kind of relearn how to walk 12 years ago. And I was like, I can't believe I lost all of it. Same thing happened here. Yeah. That's an interesting point too, because when you just do something once a year, it's not like you, you lost a year. You actually lost two years right. because by the time it, by the Comes time around. one year passed and you're not able to do it now, it's two years since you've actually done the thing, mm -hmm. even though you just canceled that one event. So that I, I would imagine for a lot of events was a big challenge, just trying to remember how it all runs because yeah. you're, you're able to kind of get in that feeling and that momentum. And I know at the events that we do with the Pacers, there's enough events throughout the year that you're kind of always in that mode a little mm -hmm. bit, but to take two years off of all of that completely and then start it back up again, I would guess that there were probably some benefits to that too, right? Like I, I would imagine that as you approach it, you're like, I don't remember how we used to do this. Let's come up with a different way. And maybe that different way was better. Did you find anything like that? Any ways where you're like, we can't possibly do it that way again. Let's do it this way. And then you're like, oh, hey, actually this way was, it worked. Oh, for sure. I mean, like uh, the beer festival, for example, we, we had always done the beer fest and the bike ride really crammed together in the same location in Bailey's Harbor. I'm talking about the Peninsula Century Spring Classic bike ride. We do that on Father's Day weekend. And we wanted to spread that crowd out a little bit this year and not condense everyone in downtown Bailey's Harbor. So we moved the beer festival to Maxwell and Bray's outside of town, did this whole shuttle thing for parking. And because there's not enough parking on that site for a thousand people and we spread it out and it gave us a lot more room. So everyone wasn't tight in this packed space. And we found out that that just worked a lot better. It's funny like when you are forced to think differently, you go, oh, there was a better way to do this the whole time. We just weren't even thinking that way. Right. So we'll probably keep the beer festival at Maxwell and Bray's and, and it worked great. And the people loved it. And same thing with restaurants. I mean, so many of them, like I, I think of one thing that will stick with me from COVID is, and this is again, a crass thing to say when other people have dealt with loss and death and illness on a grand scale. But there are many ways that it forced Door County to learn and find new ways to do things that will be a long-term benefit. Like restaurants operate differently. They have so much more outdoor dining now, outdoor space. And they've, they've made their spaces better because they were forced to. Whereas in the past, it's like, well, yeah, maybe we'd do that, but I just don't have the time and I don't have the money. But because of COVID, there was all this grant money and low interest loans available for restaurants who usually don't have access to that kind of stuff. Like when you're in a restaurant, heck, most of the time when you're a small business owner, you're desperate for the bank to give you three grand to get you through the month, let alone be able to take 10 or 15 grand and invest in something new. Well, all these grant programs were out there and it allowed people to do that and to think differently and have the funding that they could never, nobody ever had. Nobody was ever making that available. And it's a one-time blip in our lifetimes that we haven't seen in generations. And I think that it's almost like a, a bit of a new deal, even though it was seen as COVID relief, it's almost like a, a new deal progressive program to change the way we think and funnel money to small business owners for the first time in my lifetime as a business owner. Yeah, let's talk about restaurants a little bit because I, as I was going through the stories from last year, the big thing that stood out to me was the connectivity between this year and last year. And I don't know that we necessarily honed in on that connectivity as it was happening as much as maybe we could have. 
But I do think in hindsight, it is it is really interesting to see the situation that happened. So in 2020, everything closed down and the organizations that absolutely could not function like theaters per se, because they just could not have performances, right. they had to take a year off and do other things. But restaurants didn't do that. They found ways to continue to stay afloat, right? They, they couldn't do indoor dining, but they adapted to do either curbside pickup, shifting just to to-go, or expanding their outdoor seating. And we didn't have a ton of people in 2020. Like, things were relatively quiet. So even though many restaurants lost a lot of their staff, they also didn't have the same number of people coming through the doors, right? Mm -hmm. So there was a little bit of a balancing act to play there. In 2021, we saw a ton of people come back. After the vaccines came out in the summer, there were a ton of people, but we didn't see the same in staffing, right? We didn't see restaurants rebuilding that. So not only did they work really hard all year long in 2020 under these really weird circumstances, they had to then just open the doors back up without being able to get back to pre-pandemic staffing. Yeah. And so they burned out. (laughs) Well, you had the burnout, you had the supply chain issues that were prevalent this year. You had restaurants not able to get their food in and just not having what they have, having to reduce menus, having to reduce hours, closing earlier, closing more days just because they couldn't get the staff to keep up with the increased demand. Yeah. And so when we talk about like 2021 was all about coming back and getting in person again, you have to remember that it wasn't like uh, 2020 was so hard and 2021 was so great for restaurants. It was a long two year burnout period, basically. Right. And while restaurants had the demand, they, they couldn't possibly keep up with the supply. And so in a year where you might go, there were a ton of people, restaurants must have been doing really well if they're not able to stay open then that cuts into how well they can do. Absolutely. And then also you just had like that time off that people finally had. And I've, I've mentioned this to people when I finally got out of the restaurant industry and I was only in it for 10 years when I finally got out and just started working a nine to five. And it was, it's so hard to even imagine that I could work a nine to five and not once you're, it gets so ingrained in you, you start to almost doubt your ability to do anything else and be successful at it. And even live that life. You're like, well, I'm just used to having the cash in my pocket. I'm used to being up late and being in this industry. I still have a guilt complex when I go to a restaurant and I'm not helping them bust tables. And I think most of the people who spend a lot of time in the industry feel that way, even when they get out. But when, when you have that shutdown and it forced people to just take that, like, all right, I guess I'm not working for a few weeks or a month or so, realize, wow, why was I doing it that way? Why was I working my tail off? Now I realize that my legs feel so much better after not being on my feet all day, all the time. So they've just left that workforce. And it's not that they stopped working altogether. They just found other jobs because now the other jobs pay more and it it opened their eyes to working a different life and living a different life. So I think it's going to take a while for restaurants to recover from that. Yeah. Well, and it's going to, it's going to force a paradigm shift, right? Because sometimes restaurants that aren't able to make ends meet end up taking that out of employees' paychecks. I'm not talking about any in specific, but that's why, you know, tipped wages are the way that they are. You pay minimum wage if they don't break that with tips so that you can keep your, your staffing costs as low as possible. Mm-hmm. But the, the counter argument to that is if you have to do that to make ends meet, then there's something else going on 
there, there's some other problem that's not being solved, right? Yep. Either you're not marketing well enough to bring enough people in to be able to pay your employees more, or you're making too much or it's too expensive to keep the doors open. So you have to cut back there. There's other problems there because the solution shouldn't be paying your employees less. Right. Yeah. I mean, in a, in a perfect world. Yes. <laughs> yes. But that that's the paradigm shift. Right. Because when you have a year like like this year and like last year, when, like you said, people are waking up and realizing like, whoa, I have been, you know, wasting my life for way too little money. And now I realize that like my life is so much more important than that. And my time should actually cost so much more. You're going to have that total that shift in businesses that aren't willing to pay just aren't going to be able to staff. And it. Yeah. It's going to, it's going to change things. I will say this as a bartender, as a former bartender, there is, and I, I am one who's in favor of raising minimum wage and stuff. And, and the tip versus non-tipped employee thing is, a, it's been a, a really good discussion for us to have as a country. But if you're a bartender, you'd much rather be a tipped employee than a, than make your money from wages. Uh, um, see, it depends on where you are. And it depends on what bar you're working in. In Door County. In Door County, yes. And we have to remember that we're very privileged in that yeah. way. But if you're, if you're talking about- Because I say, about, even if you got 20 bucks an hour and you worked at eight hour shift, and so what's 20 times eight? That is $160. That is far less than a typical bartender is making at many of the primary bars up here. Right. So but you have would, to remember up here. That's yes. the thing. When you, when you talk about it from a nationwide perspective, there are- you know, you, you only do which as is why well. there's no one size fits all. Yeah. Which is why like I, okay, we're, we're going down a totally different rabbit hole, but if we're talking minimum wage, like as a business owner, no, I don't think a 15 year old should get $15 an hour minimum wage. It's not the same skill set as the 19, 20, 21 year old. They're also, they don't have cost of living. Like if you're trying to tie minimum wage to the cost of living and, and rent and all those things, they don't have that. So I'd gladly pay a 15 year old 25 bucks an hour if they were a great employee, but it's not going to be the case most of the time. We should do a whole episode on this because I think you and I could have a really good conversation about it. Yeah. Knowing that you have experience in the service industry, I don't, but you know, my wife's whole family is built on owning restaurants and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's also a challenging conversation to have even, you know, with my wife because <laughs> we have completely different perspectives on it. But we'll save that for another one time and we'll, <laughs> we'll jump back into year in review. Uh, I'm feeling too comfy to actually debate anything. Yeah, yeah. So I want to talk about theater, but before I do, is there any, anything like news wise, any other stories that were, were big for you this year? Well, I mean, there's, there's a lot. I think the, the discussions that stand out, the broadband discussions, there's a, you know, where it seems like we're moving forward towards some things, some major investments. There's housing. You know, one thing that really sticks out to me is, and I wrote this in my intro to the year in review section of this week's paper, but is the the perseverance is a lesson for a lot of people. You know, you look at the granary, they broke ground. That has been a fight forever. And now they have an award-winning design. It looks cool. It's probably going to end up very similar to the steel bridge in that like the steel bridge was this long fight. And 10 years later, it's the logo for the city. Yeah. I think the, granary, the granary will end up on the garbage cans. <laughs> well, the granary may, I mean, they raise that money and, and build it. It's a beautiful design. It, it could end up being a hallmark, you know, the, the lighthouse tower right next door. I mean, that, that project languished for years and they finally got it to the finish line. You know, there's still some work to be done in there, but um, that opened this year. Eagle tower took years and years of work, years of fighting with the state to get money and, and get an approved plan but that reopened to rave reviews this year. You know, the housing stuff that people... Before you go too much further, I just want to say on, on those projects, we receive 
tons and tons and tons of pictures in our email boxes for door lens and for consideration and print and all that kind of stuff. What are the major things that we get pictures of? I mean, number one is sunsets, but then what are the big icons that we always get? It's cave point, probably by a three to one margin. Sure. Over anything, over the second place one. So please find something other than Cave Point. Well, yeah, that, that's our plea. But also like the Door County icons, right? We get Cave Point, we get lighthouses, that kind of stuff. This year, I saw a lot of the Maritime Tower. Yeah. Lots of pictures of it, especially when it's yeah. lit up special for different events and holidays. Yep. Tons of pictures of that. We got a lot of pictures of the new Eagle Tower. Mm-hmm. So if the goal for these things were to create new icons to serve generations you know, down the line, I think they're working because yeah. people are excited about them and taking pictures of them and sharing them. Yeah. It's not just, you know, locals. It's, it's everybody is, is going to these things. They're drawing people in, which is, I guess what we wanted them to do. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's a really good point. And you know that, but it's also, so my, what I was getting at is just like, it takes time. It takes work. It takes not giving up and it takes some people to lead these things and just continue to believe in them. You see that with some of these, even on a smaller scale, Little Sister Resort, that's been back and forth about whether they could save those cabins and the barn. And as of yesterday, they were starting to move the barn off the foundation there. And that's going to end up at Corner of the Past Museum. So there's there's a, a subset of us who will give up the first time that something gets a little difficult or the first time someone says no. And then there are other people who say, OK, you said no to that. I'm, I'm charging forward. I'm going to find another way. I'm going to make you believe or if you don't believe, you're going to get out of my way and we're going to make this happen. And that's been pretty cool to watch, especially when I'm seeing a new generation of people do that, like Paul Anschutz in Sister Bay, Todd Helene down here in Bailey's Harbor, where he's going to build a housing structure, kind of innovative project there. Marissa Downs doing her housing project in Sister Bay that'll bring 46 affordable units up there. There's been all of those projects have faced pushback and roadblocks and hurdles And, you know, lesser people would have just said, okay, it can't be done and put their arms in the air. And I know a lot of people in this community have done that over the years. And we've, we've got a new generation just saying, no, I'm going to keep working. I'm going to find a way. And that's really cool to see. I'm glad you brought that up because it gives me an opportunity to just button up the restaurant thing one last time. Cause there was one other thing that I saw that I wanted to talk about, which I thought was really cool. Is that like in 2019, I feel like a lot of restaurants were expanding and either building new locations or like totally redoing their, their dining rooms or expanding their outdoor dining. And some of those things were a little scary moving into the pandemic because it was like, oh, we just totally overhauled our dining room and now we can't use it. Or we just opened this new location and now we don't have the staff to work both ones. The The people that invested in their outdoor dining, I feel like reap the, the benefits of that over right. the pandemic. But it was interesting to see everybody kind of booming in 2019 and then 2020 really locking everything down. And yet, In 2021, there were still a lot of new businesses opening up, new restaurants, new owners for old businesses, like changing hands. So even though everything was really difficult, we didn't see people giving up. We saw people reinvesting, which I thought was really cool. Shiny Moon Cafe, Bayside Coffee, Peach Barn Brewery, like just a, a bunch of places opened up in the middle of the pandemic. And we're like, hey, we're investing in Door County. And I know it's a really weird time to do that, but here we are. Yeah. And it was really cool. You know, you mentioned that and it's 
I guess that brings up the other main thing that I think back on this year is this conversation in some quarters about over-tourism or our capacity to handle tourists. It's been an issue with the room tax discussion. It's an issue on social media. It's an issue with some of the environmental groups. And it's been really fascinating to see this evolve to me because, you know, you just look back a few years and we were begging for more business. I was trying to put some thoughts together on this of just like, we got what we wished for and then we what we've always wanted. And then we don't really know how to handle what we always wanted. Right. Like we and weren't prepared for what, you know, we, we want a little more income. We want to have a better life. We want to have higher wages for our service staff and our, we want our businesses to make enough money to reinvest. And this year we finally got that. And you see it in the room tax numbers and the sales tax numbers, and you see it in the population growth. Like for the first time in my lifetime, we have a population growth of young families in, in Door County and particularly Northern Door, where the population grew by 2,500 people in the county. And roughly 1,500 of that is in the northern part of the county. And yet now, in, instead of like trying to really figure out how to handle it, a lot of people are just going like, it's too much, send them away. Like we got a lot of Norbly culture and Norbly before your time, but he was a classic. I moved here from Chicago. And after I got here, that bridge should have been blown up and nobody else should have come. And he softened on that near the end, but that was kind of his take for a long time. And we've got a lot of that in this county now, which is, I just, you know, I'd, I'd like to see everybody write down what, what their moment was that it should have stopped. <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? Because it's not a question of having too many people here. It illuminates more challenging questions that I don't know that people are as excited about actually investigating. So right. the question isn't like the number of people because you're bouncing it against what? Not landscape. You're not saying how much, how many people can the peninsula hold before it breaks off and floats into the, the <laughs> lake. The question is we need to find a balance between what the number of people and our capacity to support them. And what is our capacity? How many people do we have in the workforce? How many affordable housing units do we have so that we can build those numbers up? It's a much more complicated discussion than just the number of people that are here because the easy conversation to have is how do we bring less people up? That's the easiest way to fix this. I say fix with quotations because it, it's a Band-Aid, right? You, as soon as you bring less people up, other things are going to erode. But that's a much easier surface level conversation to have, right, is the yeah. number of people. It's not actually getting to the core of the real challenge, which is how do we support the capacity that we should have? Yeah, and, and really, you know, there's a, an older gentleman who had come to me and he said, like, we need to have this conversation, not like necessarily a government conversation, not a, not a economic development conversation, but a community conversation about the vision we want to have for the future. And I think that he, he makes a really good point in that. And th this gentleman is about 85 and he's like, I'm not going to be here for it. But, you know, I think of my perspective and how much I've seen the county change and evolve. And he's not saying like better or worse. He's just saying it changes. And we could have done some things to guide it in a little bit better way at various points in my life and we never did it. And he goes, we need to do that now. We need to get the knowledge of the people who won't be here 60 years from now and learn from what they experienced. And then we need to get the younger people to look at it, like, here's, I'm going to live here. What's, what do I want this community to be? We really aren't having a lot of that long-term conversation. We're playing a lot of whack-a-mole, just trying to solve a lot of the issues of the day. And I think that's kind of the conversation that'll get larger at you know, like versus how many people can we have here and what's our capacity and all that stuff. It's like, well, what do we want to be? And then that should guide the rest of those decisions. Like what, what are the things we want to hold on to that define us? And what are the things that we need to add? And, and what are the things we need to protect? Right. 
Because that, that question of there's too many people here, what does that actually mean? There's too many people here four weekends out of the year and it's hard <laughs> to drive a little bit for that time because nobody's having that conversation right now. Nobody's talking about how no. many people there are in the winter or in the fall. And so my mind would gravitate right to, well, let's really build those four weekends up and make as much money as possible so that businesses can stay afloat during the winter. Mm -hmm. That's still one of the challenges that we have. And this year, more than other years, because while for many years we saw more and more businesses staying open year round, this year we saw the opposite of that. And businesses that had been open year round had to close down because they can't find help. So that becomes a question of like, okay, these four weekends are pretty unbearable, but it means that we get an entire <laughs> winter of being able to go to our favorite restaurants and get coffee yeah. and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So that's the other part of it. And in Bailey's Harbor, we're all desperate because Bearded Heart shut down. Right. <laughs> I, I dropped coffee in there uh, on purpose, you know, not to say anything bad about Bearded Heart, but... I can only make my own coffee so many times in the winter before I'm desperate for a latte or something else. Well, you know, and that whole conversation about over tourism, like the Bailey's Harbor is a great example. When we moved our offices here, we were in Ephraim. We moved our offices to Bailey's Harbor in about 2010, I think. There wasn't a place to go to lunch for about seven months a year. And then the Cornerstone started doing lunch every day. And then, so that started open and in part, like I think we brought 20 employees over here who needed food every day. And then the gas station switched hands and started doing a more expanded menu. But it was, there was not much over here in Bailey's Harbor. And then, especially in the wintertime. And then now you look at Bailey's Harbor and you go, man, the, the brewery came in. That was a huge, that changed things a, a great deal in Bailey's Harbor. Bearded Heart opened up with their tiny little coffee hut for the longest time. And that changed it. It's like, oh, now we have that. And then Chives, coming to town and then adding everything they were doing. And then you had food trucks and now it's this very lively town well into the fall. And even in the winter, there's still more places open than there were back then. But then when a couple of them shut down this year, you just, Oh, and I just wonder if that doesn't happen without some of the growth, right? Those new things don't happen. Those places to go aren't there. So it's like, what do you want to give up if you want less? And if you think it's overdeveloped, like, do you think those things are still going to be here? Cause right. Because they won't. So, and, I mean, those are the trade-offs. Those are, and it's not an easy answer. Like, I don't want it overdeveloped either. I don't want it super crowded. I mean, one of the conversations we have to have is like, if we're going to actually going to be like five or 10% busier in the shoulder seasons, it's going to make it easier for chain restaurants to invest and show up in Northern Door County. And I know I would guess nine out of 10 residents don't want that. So that's a conversation communities should be having is like, how do we make sure we are ready and prepared to shape those kind of decisions? Right. What do you think is going to move into Subway? Sturgeon Bay? Yeah. I don't know. I'm probably be at Taco John's again. <laughs> nice. Sturgeon Bay, the chains in Sturgeon Bay have this way of cycling background. Maurice's came, failed, closed, came back. I think Taco John's was in a spot once. Taco Bell was in a different spot. And now they've reopened in a new spot. The old Taco Bell is Jimmy John's. We have a way of bouncing our chains around. So, Can we get a Burger King up here, please? It's my favorite fast food restaurant. I'm not going to promote any fast food restaurant. All right. Well, I will. <laughs> I would love a Burger King up here. Miles, I want to talk about theater a little bit. And I will try to do it in a way that keeps your attention. Okay? So theater is an art form where people get up on stage. And they <laughs> pretend to be other people. It's fascinating. It's like movies, but in real life. Do I have to go that far back? You already lost me. Okay. All right. So this year was actually really interesting because I have a theater background. And at the end of this episode, I'm going to pull together every single time I've ever talked about theater and every time you've talked about owning husbands. And we'll just do a 45 minute super cut at the end. But I, I found this 
year to be kind of fascinating. And, and I, I really enjoyed seeing the creativity last year too. And all of this comes with the caveat of like, do I wish that things could have been normal over the last two years? Absolutely, because there were financial things to consider about doing what was done over the last two years. That was not great for anybody. But that being said, I, as a theater geek, really liked seeing a completely different offering than we normally have. So last year, everybody got creative and tried doing different things. But overwhelmingly, all of the theater companies turned their smartphones onto their staff and their actors and their crew members. And were like, hey, tell me about you. Right. That was something that I really tried to do over the last couple of years mm. is feature artists, not actors, but people who work behind the scenes and, and feature them in ways that they don't normally get featured. When you go see a show, you don't really think about the costume designer or the stage manager or the set builder, right? But without those people, you wouldn't have a play. You just have two people talking to each other and just have a conversation. And so seeing companies highlight those members in the off season, I thought was, was really wonderful. And that's something that I am glad that we got and I hope that we continue to get. I hope that we continue to see that like refocusing in on the people behind the scenes mm. moving forward. This year, I think the most interesting facet of theaters coming back was the, the layman's conversation about why it has to be the way that it is and then the actual answer for that. So I remember even in this office, we had conversations where it was like, why do the theaters have to close? Why can't they just socially distance the audience? have everybody wear masks. Peninsula Players has those big windows. It's basically outside, right? So why do they have to close? And the answer to that is it actually didn't matter about the safety of the audience at all. That was not the consideration. All of the theaters up here, all of the professional theaters are equity theaters, which means they work directly with unions to cast their shows and to staff their crew. And if the union says, hey, the safety of the actors or the, the staff, that's the concern, then there's nothing that you can do with the audience to make that better, right? Hmm. So even if you pretend like Peninsula Players is outside and you socially distance the audience, you're not gonna socially distance the actors on stage. Even if you try to do it during rehearsal, eventually they're going to have to take their masks off and stand next to each other on stage. Unless you completely redo everything about theater, which some... Some theaters nationally did. There were some performances, equity performances in 2020 that featured actors separated by plexiglass barriers, wearing masks in outdoor theaters. Hmm. That did happen, uh, but it just, it wasn't going to happen up here. I mean, even if Northern Sky tried to do it, it would be pretty challenging. Mm -hmm. So that was the big, that was the big concern. Like, why can't these things happen? Well, because it has nothing to do with the audience. It's all about navigating the unions. And like every other organization in 2020, Actors' Equity Union had huge layoffs. So you were trying to get information from a skeleton crew, basically. And so nothing was coming up, like, timely. They would release these guidelines that would go until, like, the end of July. So it was like, okay, so if we invest in completely redoing our HVAC system, buying all of this COVID PPE and testing supplies, we can invest a ton of money in doing all of this stuff. And then we're going to open three weeks after these guidelines may expire. And it's like, we didn't have to do any of that. Right. So it was a balancing act of trying to figure out how do we put on performances and not completely shoot our budget early on because we don't know how many people are going to come in. Do you think the um, unions did a good service to their cause? It's hard to say because like I said, the unions were really limited. 
right? You, you didn't have nearly the amount of people to facilitate the same number of theaters. Well, I just mean like in terms of like, cause they were pretty strict for a long time. Right. And I'm, I'm a yes. union guy, but I, the reason that I bring this up is cause I want, like it always has bugged me. Like certain times there are things that like teachers unions do, which in general, I, I think teachers unions are a good thing. I think unions have historically been a huge force for raising millions of people wages and quality of work life in the United States, but they often shoot themselves in the foot. And I wonder that like you look at the NFL, that is a union. The players are union. Anything that they do has to be agreed upon by the players union and the owners. And that goes for all professional sports leagues. And they all figured out a way to go back to work and have the players not wear masks on the field, but wear masks on the sidelines and things like that. So I wonder, like, when I see that, I go, well, how come theaters couldn't have worked at the same pace in getting back into finding a way that their people could work, right? Yeah, and the other thing to take into consideration is the seasonality of theater, right? And how- By the way, I'll throw out this one caveat. Like, I don't know anything about theater, so I'm saying right. that, I'm asking the question that- <laughs> Right, the, the reason that it maybe seems more- challenging for us is because all of our theaters for the most part are summer stock theater they do their season in the summer and then many of them don't do traditional performances throughout the rest of the year right they do a lot of readings they do a mm -hmm. lot of other types of things third avenue playhouse is different but peninsula players northern sky the majority of their performances are in the summer or shakespeare all in the summer broadway reopened in september so all of the summer stock theaters across America had to deal with these challenges well before Broadway had to. And Broadway is the real focus of theater in America, right? Mm. So these unions are focusing in on how to get everything ready for Broadway. And they're working on a schedule that, that has a deadline of September. So when our theaters are trying to get everything ready to go in June, July, and August, they're trying to push that three months ahead. And that's, that's where some of that bottlenecking came from. Mm. All that is to say, and I'll, I'll, I'll be brief about this. We had a season. People showed up and supported the theater. There were really great performances. And there were performances that both were not compromised. Like Peninsula Players did two shows, but they were very much what you would see at Peninsula Players. So they returned to form really well. Northern Sky opted to do more performances, but to change their performances slightly. So they did a virtual show and then they brought that show on stage. And it was actually one of my favorite performances of the whole year. Hmm. They did basically what what they would call like an enhanced reading or a, uh, an expanded preview of the fisherman's daughters, which a reading is something that people in the cities are pretty familiar with. If they go to theater, it's basically actors sitting in front of music stands with their scripts and reading the play to you performing, but with no choreography and stuff. The fisherman's daughters had costumes, choreography, that kind of stuff, but it was an expanded reading. That's something that people don't really get to see in the summertime at a big theater. And it's something that Northern Sky probably wouldn't have done any other year than this. Hmm. So you got to see different types of theater that people in the cities are more used to, but Door County audiences might not be. And I think that that's a really good thing. Hmm. Like seeing theater companies experiment with what they do and then saying, hey, next year, why don't we do some more of what we did this year? We don't have to limit our cast sizes or our sets and stuff as much, but maybe one of the performances should be totally different. Why not? Like, why not just show our audiences that? And I've had conversations with the different artistic directors up here, and that's been a big challenge, right? Yeah. Because if the players puts on a show that's completely different from what their audience has come to expect, that's not always going to be a big hit 
with their audiences, right? There's a right. reason why you would go to these different Yeah, you got to go back to the well. And it's like when you book a band at a bar, you yeah. get, you're going to book the cover band. Right. Even though this place must, this might be an incredible musician and they do incredible original work and they do a whole show of great stuff. It's like, people don't know your music. They, they're not, if they don't know they're going to be able to dance to it and sing along, it's just harder to get them there. Right. And it, it, it's a hard balancing act to make. Like, how do we do stuff that's new and creative and, and challenges our audience without pushing them away? Because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, all of these theaters have to make money. I mean, yep. that's, that's what they're, they're there for. So all in all, last two years, absolutely fascinating with theater. I'm glad that it's back. And I hope that we continue to see some of the innovations that we've seen over the last two years. Change your course then. I asked you to come with predictions for next year. That's one. <laughs> I, I'm going to predict that we have even more of that interesting kind of stuff. Dor Shakespeare did a one person Hamlet, which was absolutely fascinating. As somebody who really likes Hamlet, super cool show because yeah. you were just, it was you and them and the text. And that was it. And you got to just experience the text. For somebody that doesn't know Hamlet, probably a really challenging show to watch. But <laughs> that's my prediction for next year. We're going to get more of that experimental. At least it's my, it's my hope. I hope that yeah. we see more of that coming through. That's my first one. How about you? What is my first one? Um, I like how you're like, I asked you to come with predictions and then you didn't come with predictions. I think like one of the things I look ahead to next year, and this is on a, a news front, I think we're going to finally see some major stuff happen with some of the big issues. I think we're finally going to see something tangible with housing. I think some of that's already in the works. And I think that might drive other people to try some things. I know there's a lot of stuff percolating out there. It probably won't happen in Ephraim where they don't like people who need housing. Sorry, Ephraim. You voted on it. <laughs> the, uh, Dave's going to hate that. I think we're going to see some some things happen on internet front. In I mean, we're already way. seeing we're already seeing that right with Washington Island getting fiber. Yeah, and they're going to be the they're going to have the fastest speeds in all of Door County. Washington Island of all places is going to be the first modernized town in Door County, which I, I never thought I would say. I mean, in Door County, it only takes twenty years of these issues percolating before people start to actually take action. Right. <laughs> we know what it took. It took some of the restaurants closing that they wanted to go to, and they're like, "Well, now we have to solve housing and workforce and internet." <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't get my Swedish meatballs. We better <laughs> fix this stuff. But yeah, I think there's going to be some tangible stuff there because I think the crunch that people saw with businesses this year, from a housing perspective, really put a pinch. And then the influx of people working remotely here hit a point that, and, and just like the, the change in culture. I mean, everybody's streaming now, everybody's wanting access to those things and realizing that they can't get that or, you know, their grandkids are visiting and can't do the things that they want to do. I think that's pushing some of this internet conversation, just the, the overall need. I mean, we, we've realized we can't get by with like a, a lower level anymore. Right. So I think you're going to see some investments by municipalities. I think you're going to see, private individuals on the housing front and municipalities pitch in. So I think you're going to see some things change there, but I think the, you're going to still see the grappling of door County is still cheap to a lot of people out there. It's, it's still, it's crazy when you live here. Cause you, you start to wonder, you think we've peaked maybe, or that the housing market's peaked, but so many people I talk to are saying like, if you're not from here, it still is a bargain and people are still targeting this place. So I think the housing crunch is as much as we build new housing, it's going to, it's going to get exacerbated in other ways. Do you think we've reached the tipping point or do you think it's going to get worse before it gets better? Probably gets worse. 
Cool. My mind. Yeah, sweet. So 2022, it's going to get worse. Yeah, that's our Miles Danhausen. <laughs> on the housing front, not that... So if you are on the lower end, I think there might finally be some options that start to become available. There might be more apartments that become available. The housing market for somebody who's in the middle, I think that it's it's hard to envision us building decent homes in that 250 to 350 range anymore. I think the ones that were there even four years ago, the ones that you and I bought, those are now 350 to 450 houses, if right. not higher. And that's the that's the shift that I that's going to be tough because I think Door County is very attractive to a lot of people who would be in that market, who would already move here, young families. That's, that's kind of the young family market is that you know, maybe they've done well enough in another city. They've wanted to get back here. They want to buy in. And then they look and there's nothing under four fifty five hundred thousand dollars of that's not a total fixer upper. So that's we're losing opportunity to bring a lot of those people in here is how I look at it. It's like the young families to replenish our, our schools. But that's the part where I think it's going to get worse. I think we're going to get better at supplying some of the workforce stuff because business finally has to get involved and make it happen in a, in a big way. And municipalities finally have to get involved. Right. Prediction number two for food. I think we're going to see more food trucks. That's a good, that's a good guess. So since I moved up here five years ago, I feel like early on, we were talking a lot about this shift into fine dining, like really experimental, like high cuisine with incredible presentation, that kind of stuff was the, the big ticket item. Right. And then all of a sudden, over the last couple of years, we saw more food trucks and more people being like, we're just going to serve food. You know what I mean? Like DCBC Eats right across the street from us. It's yeah. just, it's a little shack that serves really good food. They have a menu of like six items and that's what they do. And it's great. I think we're going to see a lot more of that. We're right. going to see instead of people investing in the whole restaurant with the kitchen and the dining room, I think we're going to see a lot more of that like Charnuska style. Small shack, maybe one or two chairs in there pick up your food and go really excellent food, but without any of the extra minutia on top of it. I think we're going to see kind of a, a relaxation into that smaller footprint for restaurants. I think you're absolutely right. That's a great point because having been in the restaurant, it used to be that you had to buy the property and that wasn't as daunting 30 years ago because you could, you could get the land relatively cheap. You weren't paying the top of market price. Now, if you want to buy a restaurant up here, you're spending at the peak of the market and restaurants are tough to, <laughs> tough to make money on. So you're spending all that money on a big dining room, on a big property that its highest and best use in many cases isn't a restaurant. So you're kind of at a loss the moment you buy it. But if you do a food truck or a smaller footprint place, like what uh, Paul Wanish kind of introduced up here with Charnuska, one, you you don't have to staff as many people. You don't have to upkeep as much property, but especially if you do a food truck, your risk reward, like your barrier to entry is so much lower. Right. You know, and even if you spend a hundred thousand dollars on a food truck, that's a fraction of what you'd be paying to get your foot in the door with a property. Now you got to find all these other ways to use it and stuff, but then getting out if it fails and most restaurants fail, yep. <laughs> most people want to get out. You can get out without submarining your life. Other times you have people who wanted to be out of a restaurant industry 10, 15, 20 years ago, just can't get out yeah. because they can't get the money for the property that they wanted or they can't hand it down to, to other family. It's a really difficult way to a thing to get yourself out of. That being said, you're already seeing it. And I think you'll see more of it. People putting the restaurants on the market and selling one because people are looking for property to invest in, not necessarily keep them as restaurants. So I think, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw some mainstay restaurants disappear next year and the year after yeah. just because people offer money and they won't be 
won't be wanting to use them as restaurants. Yeah. The other thing too about like food trucks is think about even just this year, the businesses that opened their property up to a bunch of different options, right? So like Max at Maxwell and Bray's, their whole thing was we're going to bring in a rotating group of restaurateurs that don't have, in many cases, a location, yeah. right? And they're they're going to spotlight them every week. So like Jamaican Door and some of the different food trucks, like they just got to come in and try different things. Time did their grilled cheese experience. You, you know what I mean? Like yeah. places that didn't have a permanent home. Bad Moravian's doing pop-ups. Yeah. Ephraim. They got to do Ephraim that. Ephraim of all places has pop-up restaurants. I know. And <laughs> the biggest one for me was Jake Dannon at Nicolay Beach. He brought food trucks there. Yeah. There were two of them as far as I know there. And like, if you're a food truck owner, can you imagine a more captive audience than being on the beach like that <laughs> in a park? Yeah. You've got people who are hungry who aren't going to not only leave the beach, but have to leave the whole park. Mm -hmm to get to a restaurant, yeah. of course they're going to eat the food that's right there. Mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're a food truck owner, that's like prime real estate. Yeah. That's the best place to be. And I think we're going to see more of that. We're going to see, if not just more food trucks popping up in different locations, we're going to see more places be like, hey, we've got a big parking lot. We're just going to, we're going to do pop-ups every weekend and we're just going to bring in more and more people. We're just going to like showcase their food in an interesting way. Because it's not just like a Euro hut, right? It's not just a hot dog cart. It's, in many cases, restaurants that you already know doing something really good and more experimental. Like mm -hmm. Those are the people who are opening food trucks, are people with the bona fides to make really great sit-down restaurant food, but just creating something more unique. Yeah in these different small things. So that's prediction. And, and this is all stuff that's, it's new to Door County, but it's, we're, we're just playing catch up yeah. to other destinations and other cities. And it's one of the reasons why, and I've talked to a bunch of real estate agents and yes, there are the low interest rates that's driving the real estate market. There's the demand for Door County, there's COVID, but there's also what you, you know, COVID exposed a lot of people to what Door County is now versus what it was 10 or 15 years ago. And the, a lot of them point to the restaurants. So if you're living in the city and they say the people buying here now are younger than the people buying here 10, 15 years ago, the ones who have historically. So it's more people in their 45 to 50s, maybe with young families who are coming from the cities who are saying, you know, like now they come up here and they go, wow, I can, not only is it their natural beauty, they have access to water, maybe I get a nice home, but I'm used to all these great restaurants in the city. And now I move up here and, oh, all these towns have great restaurants. There are food trucks. There are some of these cool things. There are beer bars and uh, beer gardens and breweries that they had in the city that 10 years ago, Door County didn't offer any of those things. And now it does. So they said that's actually driving some of the, the real estate value is just the, the quality of the restaurants. I right. thought that was really fascinating to hear that from several real estate professionals. Right. Do you have a second prediction? I think the census info, as more of it and more of the specifics trickle out, it's going to be very interesting to see how we guide decisions and where we invest in the years ahead, because it's not huge to people outside the county or larger municipalities, but that growth of 2,500 people, and it's probably more than that because that's pre-COVID growth, that's impacting the traffic on our streets. You know, 2,500 residents driving around, especially 1,500 of them are in Northern Door. That's just, it's more cars all the time. It's not just tourists. So we gotta grapple with that. That's part of the reason that restaurants are busier in the off season, there's just more people here. And how we adjust our thinking based on that and how we invest in our just quality of life things locally, 
that that will impact that or that's just going to play out in county board decisions and local municipal decisions and influence i don't know it's, and, and it might be driving some of this broadband that the speed at which the broadband discussion is moving now right especially because all 2500 of them live in their cars and move to egg harbor so we're going to have to talk about parking next <laughs> yes, year too all parking i have one last prediction for next that's year that's a prediction parking will not be solved people will still be complaining about it i will still think it's already solved <laughs> All right, here's my final prediction. And I, I need your help on this because the first wave of young artists coming into the county was in the 70s, right? Well, I would say the first, people would point to what, the artist colony in Frogtown back in the 30s, 40s. Okay. And then like the slow evolution of a few, but then like the big wave was the 70s. Would you call that the second wave or the first big wave? I'd, say, I'd call that like, I'd just say the big wave. Okay, has there been a second wave? Yes. Okay, what wave are we on right now? I would say this might be like, so there were this, the foundational artists of the 70s built up this scene, and then that attracted kind of a new wave in the 90s, I would say. And then I think we're getting like a younger group now, yep. as unfortunately we've lost some of that, those foundational artists. Right, even just this year, mm -hmm. we talk about Carson Topelman, yeah. Frank Dickinson, we just lost Charlene Berg, who had opened Gallery 10 up in, in Gills Rock, so... Yeah, there's now we have a, a different wave coming up. Yeah. Right. That would be my prediction for next year. I think that we are going to start to either see the real like codification or we're going to actually be like, hey, this is it. This is the third wave of young artists coming into mm. the county. We're seeing a lot of it already, even just this year. Tom Gronfeld wrote a story on the Yellow Room Collective, which mm -hmm. is a, a collection of young artists who showed at the Somi Gallery. They're building their own space. Claire Erickson is a member of, of that collective. We featured her in the magazine this year. You have Lucy at Lightbox, who's doing really artistic stuff and has kind of a community around her. I think we're going to see more and more of that young artist energy that's here now, but is going to build upon and we're going to start to see these people at gallery openings. Well, and, and, and where are you seeing that happen? It's interesting because it's a lot more happening in Sturgeon Bay with the Steel Bridge Creative District and things like that. One, it's because they've worked to try and create that, but also artists can't afford <laughs> to do a little gallery space. There's not property in Northern Door to do the things that that first wave did in the 70s where you could buy a cheap house, cheap land, put up a gallery sign and start your career. Now that's happening in Sturgeon Bay and Southern Door because that's where it's affordable to try and right. launch that. Well, I'm glad that you brought that up because that's the other part of it too, right? That's why I think that next year is going to be the big, where we like officially recognize that this is a third wave because you have places like the, the Steelbridge Creative District that have, you know, they have signage, right? Like they have an official name and, and there's people there. And the cool thing about that collective is it's a combination of both established artists and new young artists as mm -hmm. well, right? You have the Holiday Music Hotels down there, Kathy Greer's down there. You have artists that are already established here in Door County. And then you have younger artists too, Marcus Trana, the Yellow Room Collective. You have all of these, uh, it's a combination of mentors and new artists who are solidifying this district mm -hmm. together. And so I think that there's going to be some big movement down there. And I also think we're going to see some more, you know, young artists in Northern Door trying to to make it happen, especially if we do make progress on those other things, yeah. internet, affordable housing, that kind of stuff. So those are my predictions for 2022. That is to say we didn't talk about COVID or anything like that, what we think is going to happen, but... Because it's futile to predict COVID. You know, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be optimistic. Anything else from you, Miles? No, we have passed the hour point, so I think we should wrap. Uh-oh, the podcast gets deleted if we hit an hour. Yeah. All right, I'll try to cut out all of our ums. That'll, that'll get <laughs> that'll us there. Yeah. All right, thank you, Miles, for chatting with me. Happy New Year, and uh, I'll talk to you again soon. All right, thanks, Andrew. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.